and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. All right. What you got for us today? Let's jump right into it. Well, today I have, I have uh, Benjamin, also known as Tony Atkins, uh, also known as the Woodward Corridor Killer. So Benjamin Tony Atkins was born on August 26, 1968 in Detroit, the youngest of two sons. His family lived in a poor neighborhood and both of his parents were drug addicts and alcoholics. Off to a good start. Oh, yeah. Not long after his birth, his father left, and in 1970, his mother abandoned him. Benjamin ended up in an orphanage where he spent his childhood, and while in the orphanage, he was physically assaulted by the other children, and even raped at age 10 by one of the employees. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that'll fuck up somebody, all right. Over the following five years, he was perpetually subjected to sexual harassment by the other boys until he eventually escaped and reconnected with his mother. For a while, he lived with her and his older brother, but one day, Benjamin or Tony realized that his mother worked as a sex worker, which back then was referred to as a prostitute. I had to change a lot of it to sex worker in this. (laughs) Because of this, him and his brother saw her have sex with clients at their home numerous times. Oh, Sickened with his mother's activities, he left the house again in the late 1980s, where he began living on the streets and doing drugs, eventually developing a drug addiction. Due to him lacking a proper education, Benjamin had to work in low-skilled labor jobs for low wages and spent his nights at homeless shelters. In his spare time, he hung around places occupied by pimps and sex workers, but had never been arrested for any serious crimes. The majority of his friends, or acquaintances rather, alleged that they were quite fond of him, but also mentioned that when he was drunk or on drugs, he showed signs of antisocial personality and misogynistic behavior. Which, that'll do it. Yeah. Well, you think of his upbringing, though, like, I know this isn't going to lead to anything good. (laughs) Yeah. I know. know You know right away. I know it's going to get bad. Uh, because of the topic we're talking about, but like, that's a shitty way to live. Yeah. Benjamin picked young and middle-aged impoverished women, often sex workers or drug addicts, to be his victims. He would bait them to abandoned buildings where he would sexually assault them first, then strangle them second. After strangling his victims, he would leave the corpses at locations they were killed, with some of them being found months after their demise. Which, that's gotta be... Which, I mean, it comes up later in the story that they got the timeline of who, you know, he killed in order because some of them were found months after the fact. So they thought, oh, this one was the first body. Just but no. Out of order. Way out of order. Oh. Benjamin's first victim found was to be 30-year-old Debbie Ann Friday, unearthed on December 14, 1991, after she had gone missing on December 8th. On December 30th, 1991, the body of 26-year-old Bertha Jean Mason was located. She had been missing since December 11th. So, 
these are all very like fast. One went missing on December 8th. Another went missing on December 11. It's like boom, boom, boom. He's very. Yeah. What do they call that? Was they like manic or something? Where they just start doing it really fast? Because I think Bundy also had a brief period where he was just like boom, 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 one, one right after another. Yeah, definitely. Wow. And was le- and she had been last seen leaving her home and a store, which after which she was never to be seen alive again. On January 3, 1992, while bulldozing an abandoned house, workmen found the body of 36-year-old Patricia Cannon George, who had been put on a wanted list in early December of 91 after a drug den bust inside Woodward Corridor. On December 25th, the body of 39-year-old Vicki Love was discovered. She had been raped and strangled, which is his M.O. And at the end of January, Benjamin was arrested at an abandoned building and taken to the police station for interrogation. But due to a lack of evidence to prove his guilt in the murders, he was, drumroll folks, let go. Wow. There would be so many more bodies because of this. On February 17th, the bodies of three women were discovered in three separate rooms of the former Monterey Hotel in Highland Park. They were 34-year-old Valerie Chalk, 23-year-old Juanita Hard, and a Jane Doe whose identity still remains unidentified. Hmm. Family members of Valerie Chalk informed police that she went missing after she was put on a wanted list in early November. Of 91. So now we're going back. Okay, she'd been missing since November, but they found her in February. Yeah. That's the first time. body that had been found was in December. On April 9th, 1992, the body of 28-year-old Brenda Mitchell was located in an abandoned house after she had gone missing four days earlier with two of her kids after heading to the store. Brenda was found almost completely nude, except for a scarf that was wrapped around her neck, and her death was originally believed to be a drug overdose. This is what confused me, because it says she went missing with two of her kids, but then they never mentioned the children Yeah. after that. So, was she? did she leave her kids at home and went missing, or did the kids also go missing? What happened to the kids? Like, why they couldn't specify that is Yeah, the, keeping me that'll insane. drive you nuts if you're getting information about a case and then kids are gone. We're never going to mention it again. Right. A few days later, on April 15, 1992, the partially decomposed body of 27-year-old Vicki Beasley Brown, who was last seen on March 25th, was found. And unfortunately, on June 15, 1992, the corpse of 45-year-old Joanne O'Rourke was discovered. Benjamin, uh, I can't even say it right, Benjamin was arrested on rape charges on August 21, 1992, after he had been recognized on a Detroit street by 34-year-old Darlene Saunders as the man who had raped her in October of 91. Oh. Yeah. So she was likely going to be one of the first, but somehow wow. got out. 
That'd be crazy. They didn't say that, but that's just like my thought process. Yeah. He emphatically denied any involvement in the murders, claiming he had no interest in women and that he was gay. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. After additional questionings, the officers acquainted him with the psychological profile they had assembled of the killer, and after 12 hours, Benjamin Atkins admitted to the murders of 11 women. Atkins described in detail the appearance and clothing of the victims and even indicated the whereabouts of the 10th and 11th victims, 21-year-old Oshanina Waymore and 29-year-old Latanya Shawanda Smith. Their disappearances were not connected to the murders until after his confession, and the bodies were found where he had indicated that very same day. So, I mean, I'm glad that he at least copped to the location of some unfound bodies. Yeah. So that their families can have some sort of closure and peace. But, yikes. Yeah. That's always astounding when somebody's like, yeah, I killed a bunch of women. Here's some you don't know about. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, there's more. During the interrogation process, Atkins stated that his motive for the murders was his misogynistic view on girls and women who are engaged in prostitution. He claimed that he lured the victims into abandoned houses by offering them drugs and alcohol in addition to paying for their services. Differing from the official version of the investigation, Benjamin divulged that his first victim had been Patricia George, whom he said that he murdered in the fall of 91. So Patricia George, if I go uh, go back up, had been found in January while bulldozing that house. That she had been put on the wanted list in December, but nobody had seen her. He claims that he killed her in the fall, hmm. which is concerning. And since there was no physical evidence that could be located to incriminate him, he was charged for Saunders' rape based solely on her testimony and his own confession. The trial began in January of 1994. Around 150 people, including family members of Benjamin's victims, appeared as witnesses for the prosecution at the court hearings. At one of the hearings, Atkins promptly confessed to the murders, but alleged that he was insane. So first he's gay, now he's insane. Yeah. These type of people. (laughs) Just any excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we've talked before how we feel about the insanity plea, so... Yeah. Mm. For the majority of the trial, Benjamin didn't react in any way to what was happening and seemed to be detaching himself from the proceedings. His lawyer demanded leniency towards his client on the grounds that Atkin had been abused as a child. As if that is any reason (laughs) to show leniency. Excuse me, I was abused as a child. You need to be lenient for all those murders I committed. Just just let me go. I was abused. Yeah. That's not like, an excuse. I was attacked as a child. And I'm not out here murdering every pair of brothers that I come in contact with. Like, that doesn't... Yeah, it's called therapy. You know? Right. It's pretty helpful. I mean, yeah, I guess in the early 90s, there's still a huge stigma around therapy. Yeah. But, I mean... But maybe, you know, just don't don't rape and murder right. people. It's an option, too. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. According to his lawyer, the psychological trauma coupled with his drug addiction eventually led to his mental, emotional, and behavioral problems. However, 
After a four-month trial and three days of deliberations, the jury saw through his shit and found Benjamin Tony Atkins guilty. And in April of that same year, he was sentenced to several life imprisonment terms. God. Excellent. Yeah. After, yeah. After his conviction, Benjamin Atkins was transported to the Charles Egler Reception and Guidance Center in Jackson. But due to health issues, he was promptly transferred to Dwayne Waters Hospital, where he died on September 17, 1997, from an AIDS-related illness. Well, oh. good riddance. Oh, I was say probably from the drugs. I was wondering how well, he got it. No, I wasn't. And I'm not even I'm wondering if it's even that because we're talking about early 90s. There's still the the late 80s with the AIDS epide- epidemic. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking the deaths of his victims, even like even though his deaths of the victims are no joking matter. I will say that karma's a bitch. And he probably picked it up from one of his assaults. I mean, yeah, well, either an assault or if he was a drug addict. True. And he was sharing it needles. That could have been that, too. Yeah. Right. But you get what you get, asshole. So, I mean, it comes back to bite you. I'm just glad that, you know, they finally got something right and got him. But there's so many people that could have been saved had they just gotten it right the first time. Yeah, it's hard, though. I mean, if you don't have enough evidence to get a conviction, a prosecution's not going to put the case forward. No. And I I mean, I'm not going to put that on the police because that's hard to... You have to wait for something to happen to collect the evidence to convict someone. And that says, you know, before security cameras and advanced DNA evidence and everything else, so... So many times it's prosecution where they're like, you don't have enough for me to get a conviction, so I'm not going to (laughs) try. Yeah. It gets frustrating, but I mean, all in all, I'm glad that it's over. Yeah. Just terrible. And what do you have today? Today, I have the 1992 murder of... Judy Moylanen. On November 29th, 1992, at 1.30 p.m. in Ontonagon, Judy Moylanen took her five dogs out for a walk. When her parents hadn't seen her and it was nearing dusk, they became worried. Her mother, Mary Ann Blake, took a walk in the surrounding woods to try to find Judy. When she didn't find her, she returned home and asked neighbor Bill Dorvenin to help her search. Marianne was worried because it wasn't like Judy to wander around in the woods nearing dark. Her dogs were eventually found when they returned home, but Judy was not with them. Marianne and her neighbor kept searching and saw what appeared to be a body lying across the trail. Marianne and Dorvenin had discovered Judy Moylanen face down with her feet in a pool of water. Dorvenin turned Judy over to examine her, only to find her dead with her chest covered in blood. It was thought at the time to be a horrible hunting accident. Judy Moylanen was born and raised in Ontonagon and had a normal upbringing in rural Upper Peninsula. She loved the outdoors and downhill skiing and spent time at nearby Porcupine Mountain Ski Hill, where she met her future husband, Bruce Moylanen. Judy and Bruce married in June of 1978. 
Judy attended Northern Michigan University in Marquette, and after her graduation, went to work at Marquette General Hospital, where she worked as an assistant to the hospital administrator. Bruce Moylanin also grew up in Ontonagon and graduated from the local high school. He also attended Northern Michigan University and earned certification as an emergency medical technician. He was eventually employed by the EMS department at Marquette General Hospital. Bruce was often late, and at times, he failed to show up. Shortly after Judy's death, he was fired from the hospital. He let others believe that he quit the hospital and that within a short period of time, he would soon be wealthy. (laughs) Now, that was from the book I was reading about this, but in the Forensic Files episode, it said he was an insurance adjuster. Mm. So I'm not sure which is correct because it was giving right. me two different things like he had worked at the hospital and then he was an insurance adjuster so i don't know but at the time of judy's death judy and bruce had been married for 14 years and had a three-year-old daughter state police crime investigator bob ball from the calumet state police post was the lead detective in the shooting it seemed judy's death was an unfortunate hunting accident but the investigation would have to verify that before certifying the cause of death. Judy's heart was hit by a bullet, but the bullet itself couldn't be found. Neighbors said they heard a gunshot just after 2 p.m. the day Judy was killed. Bruce listed 28 individuals who he said might be able to provide an alibi for him starting at 8 a.m. and going through 6.30 p.m. that day. When Bruce was told about his wife's death, He was critical of Judy for not wearing Hunter's Orange while walking in the woods during hunting season, and investigators thought that was odd. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. And and even so, when hunters shoot something, they track it down. Why would you just leave a body there? And... If it was was an accident. Yeah, I was looking it up, and there's something like a bullet could travel, you know, depending on the angle up to three miles but that's kind of you know in the open if you're walking in the woods with a bunch of trees there's bound to be a tree in the way exactly. somewhere <laughs> so. exactly yeah and it's just like somebody would have seen her and if it was truly an accident you'd be able to say oh hey she wasn't wearing this i didn't realize it was a human being this was a full accident and they'd get off so yeah. it's not like yeah i don't know I've never uh, been out in the woods shooting at anything at all, so (laughs) I I wouldn't know. (laughs) Examining the crime scene provided little information. There wasn't any forensic evidence, no gun, no bullet, no fingerprints, no DNA. However, Ontonagon Sheriff Tom Corda observed a bullet mark on a tree not far from where the shooting occurred, but no bullet or shell casing had been found near the tree. This is one of my favorite parts. So they get Dan Castle, an Ontonagon mine employee who had a hobby of searching for um, hidden treasures, whatever, with a metal detector. He was asked to help. (laughs) So Castle looks through the scene multiple times, but fails to find a bullet or a shell casing. Determined to solve the problem, Castle tried an unusual and creative method to find a bullet. Uh, He took a slingshot with marbles and fired them at the tree, looking at where they would ricochet. 
and then searching that area for where a bullet might be with his metal detector. So after trying over and over again, his luck finally changed. Not far from the tree with a bullet mark, Castle found a foliage-covered .30-06 caliber bullet, giving police something to work with. Yeah. He's like, go, go him. Creative thinking like that. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Forensic evidence placed the time of death around 3 p.m. with an open window, meaning um, not exact, but around that time. Bruce Moylanin had easily established his whereabouts earlier in the day and also later in the day, but could not verify where he was at the time. Ding, ding, ding. So his 28 or whatever alibis he had listed, none of them could provide that alibi within that window. Investigators and others noted how unfazed Bruce Moylan was, and when he did seem sad, it looked insincere. Further investigation found that in the months prior to his wife's death, Moylanin had been hitting on other women. These women included Gail Lampinen, a nurse at Portage Hospital, and Leanne Wysocki, a Marquette resident and an employee at Marquette General Hospital. Wysocki was a single parent raising a child and a good friend of Judy Moylanin. Neither Wysocki nor Lampinen had any interest in Bruce Moylanin and considered him an annoyance. (laughs) (laughs) So... Regardless of uh, being shot down by these women, he continued to contact them. Days after Judy's funeral, Judy's friend, Leon Wysocki, said Bruce asked about a relationship with her and said he wanted to be more than just friends. Because, you know, he's got a small child. He needs a mother. (laughs) I mean, I would say that I'm surprised, but I'm not. Yeah. Like, your your wife was just killed, and what now? Well, and obviously, a lot of men just don't know the word no. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that the so-called hunting accident wasn't the first time Judy was unlucky. One year earlier, Judy was working on her garden while Bruce was on the roof fixing the chimney. Somehow, a large mm. chimney block slid off the roof and hit Judy on the head. She was lucky to have that. survived. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little whoopsie because, you know, heavy, heavy blocks of concrete can just slide down a roof. Super whoopsie easy. Whoopsie <laughs> Just slip right through my fingers. Whoopsie daisies. <laughs> Whoops. It somehow slid um, feet <laughs> off the roof and somehow hit her. Don't know how that happened. Another time, while Judy was home alone sleeping, her house caught fire. Fortunately, she woke up and was able to call the fire department. Just a little, just a few coincidences. A little worrying. Just a few. Yeah. I mean, you would think, like, some people are so stupid that they think, oh, they'll never pin it on me. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. And then one of the strangest things that happened was after the funeral... When Bruce gave a box of Judy's clothing to Gail Lampinen. Inside was a letter from Judy to Gail, who Judy only knew in passing, saying she was having problems in her marriage, that Judy and Bruce were growing apart, and if anything happened to her, please help Bruce find someone else. And as the PS, he's great in the sack. Yeah, like she had said that. 
Right. Yes. Just by coincidence. Here's this letter. Gail thought it was bizarre. As would anyone. Right. Because no, no woman would just write that and then have it, you know, just in case. Just in case. Oh, this just woman that my husband's been hitting on. Yeah, super obsessed with. I've only met in passing. Yeah. Bruce had been essentially going after Gail for months, despite the fact that Gail was also married and uninterested. <laughs> so a handwriting analyst determined the letter was not written by Judy. When tests were done on the letter, they found someone had practiced writing the letter over top of that because they could see the indentations. So if you have like multiple pieces of paper over top of each other when you're practicing writing, handwriting analysis determined Bruce wrote the letter. Shocker. No, no one is shocked. <laughs> no by this. way. I'm so surprised. The <laughs> only thing that would have made it more obvious if he was like the letter supposedly from judy was like his penis is huge it's the biggest i've ever seen <laughs> from you know signs it his name scribbles that out writes his wife's name yeah like, love bruce i mean Amy. judy um <laughs> so the more the police investigated the more it appeared this was more than a hunting accident and the evidence pointed at bruce moylanin Bruce complained the police were harassing him. He claimed he was innocent, yet he had several appointments for lie detector tests, but didn't show up or cancel just prior to. Strangely, I agree with not taking a polygraph because they're not accurate. <laughs> and they I don't think they could even be used in court anymore. So well, I, you know. It picks up on like sweat glands too and your your like blood pressure and stuff. So it's like, even if you're telling the truth, if you're nervous or you have anxiety, like I do, yeah. I'd likely not pass a lie detector test. Like they're like, is your name Stephanie? Yeah, that's a lie. No, it's not. It's a high birth certificate. <laughs> like I'm telling the truth. Like yeah. I, just... My blood pressure increases just walking into a hospital or a dentist's office. So right. that, that wouldn't work for me, so I agree with not wanting to do one. But police couldn't find the thirty out six rifle that killed Judy. Moylan didn't have one of that model in his collection, but when police looked at a bank loan, his gun collection was listed as collateral and the rifle in question was listed. <laughs> Moron. Well, thanks for making that easy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Feel like. Thanks for making us just look at an extra piece of paper. Here's uh here's an official document with my bank listing all the guns I have. Oh, there's the one you're looking for. So obviously police believe Moylanin disposed of the rifle on his way home after killing his wife. But Bruce finally took a polygraph on April twenty-third and uh I failed. And although the test was not admissible in court, the results further convinced the detectives of Moylanin's guilt, and they continued to question him and told him they knew he committed the murder. Moylanin finally confessed to killing his wife. He was then jailed and a trial date was set. Prior to his trial, Moylanin attempted an escape from the Ontonagon County Jail 
where he threw a powdery substance into a corrections officer's eyes and face before fleeing to a nearby wooded area. Within half an hour, he was spotted on a dirt road. <laughs> made it real far. Nice 30-minute break there, bud. So you get a good run? You get a nice little outside Exercise. time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> An Ontonagan County Sheriff, Gerald Kitzman, said he never really gave up. We had to tackle him and bring him down. Dude. Uh, the trial began in Marquette on November 19th, 1993, and lasted until December 15th. Prosecuting attorney Beth... I'm going to slaughter this name, and it's in here a bunch of times, so I'm just going to... I'm going to go for it. So, Beth... Pizzisny. You got it. Pizzisny presented the case against Moylanin, who was defended by attorney Tom Castleman. Pizzisny presented evidence that Bruce Moylanin had both motive and opportunity. She also showed how he would receive over $300,000 in death benefits should his wife die an accidental death. Oh, imagine that. Whoopsie, a bullet came out of the forest. What a horrible accident. Oh, oops. A brick fell from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, it fits with the fire and the brick falling. Yeah. Moylanin was also unable to account for his whereabouts at the time of his wife's death. Prosecution also had Moylanin's confession to the detective. After six and a half hours, the jury reached a verdict Bruce Moylanin was found guilty of homicide, murder, first degree, premeditated, and weapons, felony firearms. Bruce was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Judy Moylanin on January 21st, 1994. Bruce Moylanin is currently 68 years old and is in the Lakeland Correctional Facility as a level two prisoner. So that was from Murder in Michigan's Upper Peninsula by Sunny Longtime. Um, the Forensic Files episode was season nine, episode two, Hunter or Hunted. And then some of that information was from the Michigan Offender Tracking Information System. Which is fun to look through if you ever want to look at what a prisoner is doing. You just got to type in their name. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you look like these days, bud? Oh, hey, there you are. <laughs> what kind of prison tats you got? <laughs> You got you got a um a teardrop on your face. Yeah. Oh, hey. that like he just seems like a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, idiot. This is a real big idiot. And there there's a lot more in the forensic files episode, which I was getting a kick out of watching. I mean, like, he didn't want to get a divorce because then she would get half of everything, and uh, he had to cook all the meals like she wasn't a good cook or something okay. and that was it. like do you realize What's that had to do how... with you not wanting to get a divorce do you <laughs> do you realize how many relationships are lopsided like that where one person cooks and the other doesn't like <laughs> he seemed very misogynistic like he wanted her to be a certain way yeah and she bullied him apparently <laughs> oh yeah i'm sure yeah, she bullied him, but somehow wrote a letter that he was great in bed. 
Yeah. She was just being assertive, Bruce. God, Bruce. <laughs> Put your man panties on and deal with it. <laughs> Pull your tidy whities up a little bit and keep going. <laughs> Maybe they're a little too too tight. Cutting off circulation there, bud. Yeah. Well, this, this Put on something a little looser. Yeah. You might be able to see it after a while if you do. <laughs> Jesus. Ugh. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. Watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.